Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Think Tank with Cliff Waldman. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host of the show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the third show of my new, the third episode of my new show, Manufacturing Think Tank. It's my third show with um, Manufacturing Talk Radio. And what's interesting about what we're going to talk about today is that by the third show, I can already say to my audience that we kept a promise. I said on the think tank that, you know, when we got past the pandemic, or at least the worst part of the pandemic, we're going to get a little away from, you know, week to week emergencies and talk about broad, get back to talking about broader themes as I did in manufacturing matters at the beginning of my career with um, manufacturing talk radio. But I also said that none of us should believe that the world has stopped growing weekly surprises at us. Well, guess what? Here we are talking about a weekly surprise, a banking, uh, a, um, a, a very disconcerting banking eruption has gotten itself into an already complex macroeconomic picture that was, that was you know, laced with a very frustrating, very difficult inflation that the Fed was you know, trying to catch up to. And now all of a sudden we have to think about the complexities of a banking system that might be running into the Fed's uh, quick actions to deal with inflation, but also I think is running into a, a number of its own uh, problems. Who better to talk about that than one of America's leading banking economists? And after spending the past 30 years as a managing director and senior economist, at Wells Fargo's Cor Corporate and Investment Bank, my guest today, Mark Bittner, recently founded Piedmont Crescent Capital. At his new firm at Piedmont, Mark provides analysis of the macro economy to clients located throughout the country. And he writes a series of reports on the US economy, local economies, small business, and residential and commercial real estate. Mark's originally from Atlanta, where you're at now, right, right Mark? I'm um, actually up in Tennessee right now. Just left. Right. Mark's originally from Atlanta. He earned a BBA in economics from the University of Georgia, an MBA from the University of North Florida, and he completed further graduate work, work in economics at the University of Florida. He's a member of the National Association of Business Economics, where I've gotten to know him, and he completed the NABE Advanced Training and Economics Program at Carnegie Mellon University. He is also a member of NABE's inaugural Certified Business Economist class. He's very active in his community. He co-founded the Charlotte NABE chapter and served as board chair for the Foundation for the Charlotte Jewish Community. Mark also chaired the Economic Advisory Council for the California Chamber of Commerce for several years, and he currently serves on the Joint Advisory Board uh, of Economists for the Commonwealth of Virginia. You can't miss Mark. His commentary has been featured in the major media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and he's also made frequent guests on uh, appearances on CNBC and other major networks. Mark, welcome to the show. Great to be here. All right, let me let me get immediately to the question that I think is on pretty much everybody's mind, whether you're a manufacturer or a retailer or whatever it is you do for a living, is the crisis for those of us, on behalf of all, all of us who lived through 2008 and 2009, is the crisis or whatever it is we're seeing in the, the global banking system up to the point where we have to worry that it's going to have as much of an impact on the uh, US and global economies 
as was the case in 2008 and 2009. Well, I, I don't think it'll be any, anywhere near as bad as 2008, 2009. It does okay. look like things are beginning to settle down a little bit, but we're, we're not completely out of the woods yet. The problems at Silicon Valley Bank were very unique. They had a unique business model. They catered to Silicon Valley companies and things were rolling there for a long time. Tech sector was booming. Folks were able to raise capital very easily. You got an A round, a B round, a C round, a D round. And whenever you'd get one of those rounds, you deposited that money in the Silicon Valley Bank. And they would low, slowly and gradually be burning through cash and they'd have to get a new round uh, of capital. But what's happened in the last couple of years has been two things have worked against the industry. One, interest rates went up and NASDAQ stocks went down and stock prices for tech companies that have a long pathway to profitability really got hurt. And it was tougher for them to go public. So it was, it was tougher for them to make an exit in the term that the, the venture capital world. And since it was tougher for them to make a, an exit, it was tougher for them to get another round of capital. And so a lot of folks have been advising tech firms that, hey, you, you need to, to shepherd your capital because there's going to be a really long winter. And, and so a lot of these companies, they started drawing down their deposits uh, at banks that cater to them, like Silicon Valley Bank did. And on top of that, uh, the M&A uh, sector also shut down uh, because valuations were down. And the Justice Department makes it really hard for Facebook or Google or Amazon or any of these big tech firms to buy into these small startups today. So, so both of those avenues are shut down. That's what created the, the initial drain on, on deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. And then um, when, it, when, when they went to raise capital themselves, it became known that, hey, wait a minute, they've got a liquidity issue. And that turned into a run of deposits on the bank. There's not another bank in the country that fits that profile. Uh, unfortunately, when there's problems in the, in the banking sector, any other bank that's on shaky ground, well, their depositors get nervous too. And Signature Bank had a different set of issues that led to, led to their downfall. And there are a couple of other banks on the West Coast that do cater to the tech sector, but none of them to the same degree that Silicon Valley Bank did. So there really isn't another case like that. Unfortunately, a lot of the, the regional banks have been kind of painted with the same broad brush like it, that, that they're exposed in, in, in either this way or some other way, and they're really not. But until we get that trust back into the banking system, I think we're going to be dealing with a little bit of a credit crunch. One of the things that made me feel a little better, so to speak, is that policymakers move quickly on this. They, they tried to ring fence the contagion initially by um, guaranteeing uninsured deposits. Um, globally, we, you know, uh, the Swiss uh, government facilitated the uh, takeover Credit Suisse by UBS. My question is, has what's been done both domestically and globally enough? Or are it, if there's more to do, what do you think should be done? Well, we're kind of in a tough spot. And we saw that yesterday, just when, when Jay Powell was uh, at the end of the FOMC meeting when he was giving his press conference. And Janet Yellen was, was testifying before Congress. And um, Powell was saying, Powell basically said, for all intents and purposes, everyone's deposits are safe, even though there is no, no explicit guarantee for, for every bank deposit. You would think under the Equal Protections Clause of the Constitution that if you bailed out the depositors of one institution, especially yeah, one that was so. fairly, fairly well politically connected, that that would imply that if another bank ran into trouble, that they would be protected as well. But, but Janet Yellen testified before Congress 
She can't say that because it takes an act of Congress. It takes, if Congress would have to pass a law to increase deposit insurance. So I think that we're probably going to, to have to see that happen because the, the realities, everybody seems to think of deposit insurance as some rich, sophisticated depositor saying, well, you know, why should we protect them? But just think about your local charities. They raise money over the course of the year and then they disperse it over the course of the year. And so there may be, a, there are times where they have many multiples of $250,000 in their account. They don't want to have to go out and open 20 or 30 different bank accounts to make sure that they, they've got enough money to parcel out to all the organizations that they serve. So, you know, I, it, it is, we, we probably need to come up with a, a longer term fix on this. Unfortunately, the politics of that, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to happen right away. I mean, I, I think the, uh, there was a lot of pushback on trying to guarantee all deposits. Well, now for the Fed question, and I wrote and rewrote the Fed question multiple times here. So, I mean, uh, yesterday we had um, kind of muddled middle uh, to what they did. They went 25 basis points, but they, you know, they, they sort of, you know, pulled back from, uh, you know, the aggressive language of uh, persistent tightening that had been in the case in, in the past few meetings, and they acknowledged the, uh, the issue without... I mean, I, I understand that acknowledging it without panicking about it is something that the Fed chair must do in, uh, in circumstances like this. So I'm going to ask you uh, the simplest question. What do you predict for the path of Fed policy in the next, let's say, two or three meetings? What's going to happen uh, at the I, next Fed meeting? I think they'll probably raise rates a quarter of a point in May. And that might be it. They might be done then. The Fed would like to get the funds rate to 6%, because if you look at at where inflation is sticky and you take out the used car prices and you take out energy and you take out um, uh, housing, which a lot of people are thinking it's controversial because the market prices are coming down more quickly than the, the, uh, the, the implied numbers that are in the CPI. You take all that out and inflation seems to be stuck around 6%. And so, and even if it's, even if it's five and a half to six, uh, historically the Fed has had to raise the funds rate above six in order to bring inflation yeah. down. It, and that's where they were headed. But now with this banking crisis, at a minimum, we're going to see that regional banks are going to have to raise more capital. They have their stress tests coming up in, in June. And so I think that takes the Fed off the, the table in June. And then in July, we've got the debt ceiling showdown that's going to be either late July or August. So I, I think from a timing perspective, they needed to get something needed to be done by May. And I think that the tightening and credit that we're likely to see Right now, I think it's probably worth one quarter point rate hike, but it's but the tightening is likely to intensify, so it's probably going to be the equivalent of two or three rate hikes. So that may be just enough. I mean, one more rate hike, getting get, getting the funds rate to five to five and a quarter, may be just enough to achieve the Fed's goal and bring down inflation. I don't know if that gets us a soft landing or not, but it's it's probably going to be about as close as they get. I don't ever remember so much being thrown at the American economy <laughs> as has been the case in the past couple of years. So I'm going to ask you a simple question. Generally speaking, what's your outlook for the U.S. economy and for the benefit of our, our viewing audience, what specifically is your outlook for U.S. manufacturing? Yeah, well, those, those are great questions because uh, I, the, I, feel, I feel better about the latter than I do the former. I think the I think uh, manufacturing may hold up a little bit better than the overall economy does, but I think it's more likely than not that we see a recession. And 
you know, manufacturing generally is where you see the, the biggest swing in the economy. And, and, uh, and so in, in your typical recession, I think manufactured employment falls about 10%. In uh, an average recession, GDP falls 2%. I think that we're likely to see a downturn that's similar to what we saw in 1990, which also had a credit crunch. This is when we were dealing with the last part of the SNL crisis. We also had a real, some real estate issues. Uh, that recession only saw GDP drop 1.4%, or two-thirds of the drop of a typical recession. And it, um, it also saw a smaller drop in manufacturing employment. This time, I think we've seen even a smaller drop, mainly because manufacturers are so hard-pressed to find workers that folks are, are really kind of hoarding workers. Uh, but we are going to see a cycle. A, what we were seeing previously, prior to the banking crisis, prior to Silicon Valley Bank, Everybody was still focusing on supply chains. They were normalizing. People were feeling better about things. But when it came to, to inventories, you rather have a little bit too much than a little too, than too little. And now I think the financial guys are taking over and say, hey, you know, we've got we've to conserve cash. We, we've got to conserve cash. Credit's getting more expensive. And we're going to go through a little bit of an inventory cycle that I think is going to, to weigh on production a little bit. But there's a lot of really exciting things going on in manufacturing right now. All this, this shift to green energy, all the EV plants that are being built around the country, and uh, all the chip manufacturing plants that are being, all that investment is going to move forward. It's going to plow right through the recession. And I think it, on, the, on, the, on the other side, we're, I think we're going to see much better times for manufacturing. Let's talk about housing for a second. Housing is a critical um, sector for uh, the manufacturing sector. It's, a, it's an important ally. You walk into somebody's house and you see the output of 30 or 40 uh, manufacturing sectors. Now, uh, one thing about this banking uh, eruption, as I'll call it, this, this potential credit event, is that it's, it's going to keep interest rates perhaps lower than we thought uh, that they would end up to be. In light of that, uh, what, what's your outlook for the housing, US housing market in, in total? Well, it's an, it's an industry I watch very closely because I, I work with a lot of home builders and I work with a lot of furniture manufacturers and floor covering companies. And I um, and all of those industries are doing relatively well right now. Furniture is probably the one that's struggling the most. But um, but housing is, uh, is is going to go through a little bit of a slowdown. Uh, we, we had a, a really good number on existing home sales that was published this week, about 14 and a half percent. That reflected activity that the contracts that were written in January or maybe even in December when when mortgage rates got back down to six percent they've since come back up to like six and three quarters percent the challenge in the housing industry is affordability prices have risen a lot interest rates are higher it takes about 24 percent I think it's 23.8 percent of median family income and that's gross not not net after taxes to have of, of gross income to make principal and interest payments on a, on a typical home. That's higher than it was at the peak of the housing bubble. So we've got an affordability issue that, 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 that we're going to have to deal with. And I think it's gonna be very hard for housing to get a whole lot of momentum. And credit's going to tighten too. And not so much for the home builders. Um, you know, I think it, I mean, not so much for home buyers. I think that mortgage, you know, we've already seen a tightening in credit for mortgages in that, uh, mortgage rate is typically 170 basis points over the 10-year. It's closer to three percentage points over the 10-year. So it's already a very, there's already a very wide spread. And 
it's been tougher. It's been tough for anybody without a, a very high credit rating to get a mortgage. I mean, that's been the case the last few years. So I, I don't think credit's going to tighten uh, more for there. But for the home builders themselves, it's going to get much tougher for them to get uh, loans for to, to finance new land, new land acquisitions. And, uh, and so I, I think that that's going to keep building activity. You know, that's going to, it's going to restrain building activity. And, you know, we, we're not looking for, for Armageddon because we're not overbuilt. Housing is not overbuilt. It's very different from where we were in 2007, 2008. Right. We're not overbuilt at all. There's also a lot of, 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 of construction in process. There's so much work in process. Builders are going to be concentrating on trying to clear out that pipeline and, and that's going to keep them busy. So we, we've actually seen that construction employment has increased pretty solidly over the last three months. Builders are going to be busy uh, probably into the fall, uh, just finishing what's what's already on their books. And uh, and they're probably going to try to, I think they're going to focus on selling that down, uh, working that down. A lot of builders that I've talked with, or builders that you know, are for the first time looking to sell entire tracks to uh, build around, uh, to uh, single family around for rep companies. Um, so that, that affordability challenge is going to, is going to weigh on housing. And we're going to see that, that, that starts are going to drop about 20% from, from where we are right now. All right. Well, let's talk about supply chains, something that's been very much on everybody's mind the past couple of years. It's been a very hard couple of years with uh, supply chains. Um, look like they're starting to get better, not completely, but at least, you know, some normalization. Now comes this eruption in, in uh, the, whatever you want to call it, in the uh, the banking system. Now, supply chains take liquidity uh, for functioning. We learned that in 2008. That, that was one interesting aspect of the 0809 crisis is that supply chain liquidity really dried up very quickly. And it, and then it had very, we had very strange numbers on imports and exports. Um, given that, if, if this banking eruption does, um, you know, sort of uh, constrain lo normal liquidity to uh, supply chains, uh, global supply chains. Are we going to be dealing with supply chain snarls again? Are we going to be back to that again? You know, I, I don't think supply chains are going to be as impacted as they were in the in the, the two thousand eight crisis. Because we had a we had a dollar liquidity crisis then, and I know that the Fed just added a little bit of liquidity to uh, to, to, to some of the the swap lines and. And um, but to deal with the UBS crisis, but there's really no dollar liquidity issues out there. So I, I don't think that trade credit is going to, to lock up, lock down like it did that last crisis. Where attention really seems to be focused right now is commercial real estate lending at the regional banks. And this really reminds me of the late 1980s when uh, the regulators felt somewhat embarrassed because they missed the the, the bust in the ag sector, they missed yeah. the, the oil bust, they missed the turn in New England real estate. And then they all came to the South and really locked down credit and, and, and really created a tougher tougher environment, 89 to 90, than we really needed to face. And the Fed also raised rates very aggressively during that period too, taking the funds rate to 9%, if you remember back to those days. Yeah. But uh, the, the, re, the recession that we had uh, in 1990 was one of the shortest we had on record. It lasted eight months. But what I what what happened when we came out of that is that credit was slow to open up again, and we had a very slow economic recovery. I think that we're we're likely looking at a similar scenario. I think that's one of the reasons why the yield curve has been inverted for as long as it has, 
is that it's anticipating slower economic growth over an extended period of time. Let's talk about regions. Um, in 19, you mentioned 1990, I was working as an economist for the state government in New Jersey uh, that year, and it was a mild recession, on, generally speaking, for the, uh, the US, not so much for New Jersey. So regions matter. Now, we're, we're hoping that this, you know, this financial turmoil, that the worst of it may be passed, that it's somewhat under control. But, you know, you have to, do, for the moment, you have to deal with scenarios. And if it, if it escalates to a point that none of us want us, want it to escalate to, which regions of the country are going to suffer more, which would suffer less, do you think? Well, the West Coast is clearly suffering the most right now, because uh, while it's, well, it's really centered in the tech sector, and, and I would say that tech has been a recession since late last year. And we've seen that with, with all of the tech layoffs and it's impacted the real estate sector. You look at where the biggest home price declines are. They're all in California, Seattle, Denver, all the tech hotspots. Even Austin has slowed a little bit, although it's still, you're a lot better off in Austin than you are at out West. But, the, uh, but you know, if we see this credit crisis or credit crunch uh, broad and it, it, it extends to the regional banks, then the South is probably the most exposed because that's where most of the growth is. That's where you're seeing most of the of the of the new. I think about seventy percent of the, of single family residential development is in the South, hmm. and so if you if you're going to lock down residential development, that that's going that's where most of the impact is going to be, and it would be in the the most rapidly growing parts of the region which is a bit ironic because there's no overbuilding. There's, there's a shortage of housing in all of these markets. I mean, if you were to go to, to Nashville or, or, or to, uh, to Atlanta or Orlando or Tampa, um, there's no overhang of houses. There's no overhang of unsold houses. There's a shortage of, shortage of housing. Um, the office market's a little bit more problematic. And, uh, and I think that uh, the issues there are really in, in just about all the major cities that have older generation office space. It's kind of surprising that, that, that demand for newer space, and it doesn't matter if you're in Dallas or New York or Atlanta or Charlotte, the newer space, the stuff that, that came online in the 90s are, are really, the, really the really new stuff that came online in the last 10 years. It's leasing up very quickly. But the stuff that was built before 1990, uh, it's largely sitting vacant and needs to be, it needs to be shown some love or, or be redeveloped into something else. Final question for Mark Fittner. Um, we've had three crazy years, three terrible years, really. Uh, let's let's pull back from the the remarkable volatility and, and exited exigent circumstances of the past three years, and let's talk a, just a, make, give me a few comments if you would on the state of the of the U.S. economy and manufacturing sector pre-pandemic. And today, I mean, what what what's the bigger picture abstracting from all the remarkable volatility? Well, I, one of the things is that when you when you look back at, at the the period that before the pandemic, we had the longest economic expansion on record. The unemployment rate was at a record low. It was uh, right about where it is now. I think a tenth of a percentage point lower. And and the manufacturing sector had was was in the midst of its strongest sustained period of growth since manufacturing employment had peaked all the way back in 1979. And so we were really, see, we were beginning to see reshoring before, now that the pandemic kind of kicked that into overdrive, but we were really beginning to see the beginnings of reshoring, mainly because supply chain disruptions were becoming all too commonplace 
particularly in, in, in with trade with, with Asia and the cost of shipping had gone up. And then, then we had the pandemic and it, it amplified those issues a little bit. And we also saw a, a shift in trade relationships where in, in, the, in the way that, that companies handled trade with Asia, where they shifted a lot more traffic to the Southern ports away from California, particularly the Port of Savannah, which has been growing incredibly rapidly. Um, now, I, I think that the main drivers on manufacturing are, are resiliency, efforts to, to make supply chains more resilient. And when you look at these new EV plants that are being built, it used to be that, yeah, we wanted about a third of our suppliers close by, but we're going to keep our traditional suppliers, whether they're in the Midwest United States or whether they're in Japan or Korea. Today, everybody wants all of those suppliers to be as close to their plant as possible. There's an $8 billion Hyundai plant going up just south of Savannah. They've already got $4 billion in investment from suppliers that have come just to the Savannah area inside the metro area. Just phenomenal. I mean, it, it, took, it took a decade to get that kind of num those kind of numbers for the BMW factory up in Greenville. Mark Wittner, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me in the think tank today. Glad to do it. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Folks, for our next episode, we'll be talking productivity. I'm going to have a partner from McKinsey and Company that just did some very well-noted research on productivity. Be looking forward to that episode, and I look forward to seeing you there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>